4 p.m., stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. have something very, very special for you. We're going to jumpstart Black History Month. We're going to be doing something that's a, much, a little different than what most of us are used to. We have here today Dr. Haywood Hall, the son of the great, the legendary, the one and only, Gwendolyn Nitlow Hall. Welcome to Count Time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Now, first of all, let me say we was honored and, and, uh, and thrilled to be at the event last night at UNO, at the University of New Orleans, where they gave honor, paid homage to your mother, thanks to Kathy Hambrick at the River Road African American Museum, thanks to the UNO Hurricane Long Library and the Midlow Center for hosting the event. We appreciate you all, we enjoyed it. It was a great event, a great a great uh, opportunity for many to gather and share the greatness of your mother and how they impacted her. How did, how did you feel about that? Oh, I, I thought it was amazing. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, I, I, I actually have very deep roots in New Orleans, but I wasn't as connected to them, you know, because uh, I was raised uh, by somebody from New Orleans outside you know, in, uh, and spent a lot of time in other areas of the United States and also in Mexico. And uh, so I came back to New Orleans very rarely, really. And, uh, and uh, it, it, this was a, sort of a coming home thing for, for my heart, I think. And it's amazing the connections and the things that uh, I think that uh, she's done that are now her legacy and, and the way that she's inspired all of these different people. You know, and um, you know, of, of course, uh, she inspired me. She was also my mom, right? So, uh, you know, you the relationship's a little different, right? I mean, you know, but when you see that she's kind of everybody else's mom too, in a way. Oh, okay. I you know, okay. that was that was pretty significant for me. You know, to see all of these great people who've done great things and who said, you know, you know, Gwendolyn was there, Doctor. Gwendolyn Hall was there at a key moment, and she was she mentored me, and she did all that. Well, she she did that for me too, but not in the area of history because that's not what I chose to do. You know, I I, I had I was my own you know rebellious self, and when I reached a certain point, it was like I got to do something, and I can't do what my parents do. You know, so uh, let's see. So you know, my my dad was a pretty big political figure, and. And, oh, and about, we're yeah, thinking about that. Oh you know, yeah, it's a whole nother thing, you know. And they, so they lead a country. Yeah. So I had, you know, I had this very narrow little bandwidth to try to figure out what I was going to do. I, and I can tell you, I tried to fail. <laughs> you tried to fail. <laughs> I tried to fail. I dropped out of high school. I was. Hold a, on. Yeah, I dropped out of high school. I was a piano hey, tuner. Really? I was a musician. I drove a cab in New York. I did all kinds of other stuff. I. I tell people I went to medical school because I failed at everything else. But <laughs> so you was in the wilderness for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. I had to find my way. Yeah, yeah. Now that's and, interesting. And, and mom was very much, she had her way of uh, not telling me what to do, but just 
you know, explaining in her subtle way what happens when you don't do certain things, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I remember her saying, you know, not everybody has to go to college, you know, you, you know, you could like just get a job and, you know, and just work and stuff and then, you know, and then you have to pay rent, you know, and then, <laughs> like that. and I go, yeah, that's what I want to do, I want to work and pay rent, wait a minute, the rent part, uh, okay, well, I want to work, you know, you know, I want to make uh, some money, you know, and then, you know. And, and then, you know, she knew that I'd come around eventually and start. And so she kind but of... She was hoping you'd come around eventually. Yeah. Well, she, you know, <laughs> that just her, was her way of not, you know, not enforcing anything. She's make me find my own way, but mm -hmm. supporting the decisions. So she was a master at that, negative yeah. psychology. Now, 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 now <laughs> you give us a brief also rundown of where you was born, where you lived at, before you end up where you are now. Okay, that's, there's nothing brief about that. Yeah, I was I was born in Brooklyn in 1956. Brooklyn, my, New York. Yeah, my, my parents had just returned from their exile in Europe somehow. It was an exile. Well, yeah, kind <laughs> of. What, what part of Europe were they in? Were they in France? You know, mm -hmm. and I have a brother that was born in France, uh, and uh, he's a half brother, and um, and my my. You know, these, these stories are just go on, you know, people say, well, you know, tell me about your story. And I go, well, it started in 1898, <laughs> as far as I know, <laughs> you know, but uh, so, well, my parents met in France in 1950 and, um, and uh, they were there, you know, that was a pretty big exile community for black intellectuals. I mean, this was the 50s, you know, so anybody. So, so now a, a European Jewish woman, mm -hmm meets a African, not but he was American African, right? Well, he was, he was part uh, part uh, Native American too. Oh, your dad was yeah, part of it? Okay. Yeah, what yeah. tribe? You know what yeah, tribe? Yeah, yeah, he was a uh, Shawnee. You I see, that's why the story. I mean, it just if you start from where I was born, you don't get any of the backstory, and then it just doesn't right, doesn't fit right. very well. well my mother wasn't so. You know, my mother was obviously born here in uh, New Orleans, and. And she was very much a rebel, and you know, and I mean, she was at the, you know, uh, when W. E. B. Du Bois uh, gave the "Behold the Land" speech, she was on the stage in the she, background. She, she was, was on the stage. She was 18 years old, you know, and she was always involved. She, w she was right there. I mean, you know, and uh, she, you know, uh, this was unheard of for a white woman to be doing you know, these things. I mean, she was part of the Negro Youth League and she, uh, she was, uh, you know, she never accepted the status of quo of how blacks were uh, treated or under, or, or, you know, how they were devalued in any way. And so she, she became quite a firebrand and enough to get her into enough trouble that they sent her off to Paris thinking that they would get her get her out of their hair because you know because she, she, she about to get everybody killed yeah yeah, yeah cuz i mean she was at an interracial party uh of uh, Tulane and uh and that was illegal and uh you know i think they all wound up in the front page of the times picayune and whatever it was a big embarrassment so they sent my mom off to France to study piano. They thought that was going to fix the problem, and of course, he comes back with this, you know, revolutionary black leader. <laughs> it's like one of those get, guess who's coming to dinner things. <laughs> guess who's not coming to dinner. <laughs> so, so, that, so I guess your mom, yeah. did her mom and dad think they were law. Yeah, you yeah. got a whistle. Yeah. So, 
So I was born into that, you know, whole thing. And, uh, you know, this was the McCarthy era and all this. My father was a pretty famous black communist, you know, among you know other things. Communist. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and he was, you know, they were, you know, he was much further along in age than my mom was. And uh, so, uh, so this was just a, a scandal. And, uh, and so we wound up, uh, you know, forced out of the country. This is what happened with my family many times, is that, you know, the, I mean, the FBI were on blacklists, you know, they couldn't get jobs, they couldn't... That was, that was, that was called a real blacklist. Yeah, that was literally blacklist. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's how it started. That's the blacklist. They named it after my dad. <laughs> no, I don't think that's quite right, but, you know, you get the idea. But so... Um, so uh, we had to move to Mexico, you know, and no, so no, so you was born in New in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, yeah, New York. yeah, and I okay. stayed there for about a year, and then I moved. Uh, you know, my parents uh, went to Mexico. Oh, y'all yeah, went from Mexico as when you was a child. Yeah. So you never really spent much time in the U.S. No, I grew up in I grew up in Mexico. I lived in okay. Mexico till I was eight. What and part I spoke of Mexico? Spanish first. Again, I lived a bunch of places. <laughs> oh, okay, y'all want to move again? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Even in Mexico, you had to be able to move. Yeah, huh? no, I, we had the Secret Service show up at our at our door in Mexico City, you know, because John F. Kennedy was coming in 1963, and I guess they just they needed us to leave town or something crazy, you know. I mean, this is the stories are are intense. So I went to twelve different schools by the time I was in tenth grade. You know, that's then I dropped out. So, oh, but, I, I can see why you dropped yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, I was, oh, I was get tired of adjusting. Yeah, you know, yeah. but I lived in uh, Mexico City and Guadalajara, and in uh, Cuautla and in uh, Cuernavaca. Those are four, four very distinct places. Now, uh, presently, of uh, I live in Guanajuato now. Guanajuato, uh, yeah, Central okay. Mexico. Yeah. So okay, so I mean, it's a long story. No, so go, then, we got time. Right, we got okay, time. good. My father. Basically, you know, like I said, he was a radical. You know, he was born in 1898. His parents were born. Your, boy, slaves. your dad was born in 1898. Yes, 1898. Well, hold on, how old are you? Um, yeah, I knew you were going to bring that up. <laughs> you look too young. <laughs> no, no, okay, you I'm might one, be adopted. Yeah, huh? No, I'm one of the, I'm one of the undead. You know, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he was born in 1898. No, 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 no. When were you born? I was born in 1956, so my mother was in her 20s and my father was almost in his 60s, okay. and uh, and uh, his parents were born slaves. Uh, Where? Uh, they were in Tennessee. There's a county in Tennessee called Haywood County. There's a person of note that comes from there. Tina Turner comes from oh, from the right, same yeah. place. It's a so there's a plantation there. So I assume that's had something to do with it. So anyway, uh, so my father fought in World War One in an all-black battalion. You've heard of the Hellfighters, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there were actually two black battalions. Another one was the Illinois, uh, was the Illinois Regiment, and he was in that one. And he fought in this all-black battalion, but the U.S. Army would not refuse to command them. They refused to command them, so they uh, turned them over to the French. So he fought under French command but he was still a U.S. Uh, Army uh, corporal, I think. And, uh, and, uh, and ultimately, he wound up uh, being uh, buried in Arlington National Cemetery, which is another crazy... Who you did? Yeah, a crazy thing. So, so they brought him from Mexico to bury him? No, 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 I, I jumped ahead. Oh, let, me, okay. let me just go back, because okay. we're, we're still at 18, 1918, okay? <laughs> okay? Okay, let's go, let's so, go. He comes back from uh, he comes back from the war, and there were all these riots, and there was all kinds of intense stuff going on at that time, and you know uh, you know there was a lot of uh, you know terrorism from the 
from uh, the Ku Klux Klan, and and uh, there are all these black trained military trained people coming back fighting after fighting in Europe, and he was like, you know, you know, we don't have to put up with this, so we. He joined an organization called the African Black Brotherhood. I don't know if you've heard about this. Yeah, this is 1920s. This is the pre-Black Panther Party. There were about 5,000 military-trained blacks who said simply, we're going to shoot back. And uh, of course, Illinois, in Illinois, Chicago. this was all over the United States. Okay. I mean, you know, they, they again, trained. They had, the military had already trained these people. Well, they they were trained in the military, yeah. and and they were just they, you know they came back fighting. They said you know and and so and the, that was when the Communist Party was born too. You know, and the Russian Revolution and all of that. And so, you know, they were inspired somewhat by that and all that idealism. And uh, and so they had kind of singled my father out as one of their leaders, and he wound up in. Russia and went to school at the Lenin School for the uh, the Lenin School for the Toilers of the East and all this stuff. It's a revolutionary training ground. It's crazy, right? Okay. So he went to school with Ho Chi Minh and with Tang Xiaoping and with all of the, with uh, uh, Kenyatta. All these people. He would. I can show you this stuff in <laughs> Wikipedia. It's crazy, <laughs> but it's all there. And uh, and uh, so. And then he came back, and he was on the, uh, uh, you know, he was very high up in the, in the Communist Party at the time when the Depression was hitting, and the Communist Party was actually a pretty big force. And a lot of what the reforms from FDR came from kind of a counter thing, like, you know, that they had to kind of clean up their act and start thinking about society and other stuff. So, you know, it's, it was kind of interesting. But anyway, he went on and he became a command officer during the Spanish Civil War. You know, that's the one with Hemingway, you know. Uh, I mean, people know, know it from that. But so he was a command officer from there. And the then, Father Yeah. Okay. Yeah, probably one of the first black commanders uh, over white troops, maybe in history. I mean, I don't know other situations where that had occurred. Oh. <clears throat> and... Um, so and then he fought in World War One as a um, as a merchant marine. He was a merchant marine back then, and then he came back to the states. and And he, he in the twenties he developed a whole um, position paper on uh, on uh, uh, on black self defense movement in the twenties. And and uh, you know I mean like Nelson Mandela and all those folks were in the Communist Party, and a lot of them were inspired by his work. So most people know my dad for the for all of that and so then my mom shows up and oh, <laughs> and you know that that she's oh, in the middle of that you know so anyway by the 1950s you know i mean we were on j edgar hoover short list i mean j edgar hoover had you know the head of the fbi had this whole concept of making sure that the civil rights movement didn't connect internationally with, mm. with you know and they kind of went out of their way i'd have to say that's what probably did Malcolm X in, you know. Get rid of him. Yeah. He started traveling. Yeah, so they didn't want that. So, so, uh, so, uh, and by then the Communist Party had backed out of all of their civil rights work in the 50s for other weird reasons. And so he'd been exiled, he'd been expelled from the Communist Party. So he was completely isolated and wound up back in, in he wound up in Mexico where all these Spanish Civil War veterans were. You know. So he couldn't come back to his, his home company. Not, home. not. I mean, he could come he back, didn't but live it, no, they, no, we would we'd get evicted. They couldn't keep jobs. My mom couldn't keep jobs. Nobody could work. So we wound up back in Mexico, and so I grew up in Mexico in a completely different environment. You know, uh, 
uh, and uh, so it's a, it's a very long story, as you can see. Uh, so I was there till I was eight, and then uh, my mom, uh, while in Mexico, started, she spent a lot of, the, I'd say the first 10 years of their relationship, maybe more, helping my dad with a lot of his stuff, you know, and helping him write and edit and all of those things. So and your then, dad wrote several books too? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know some name? You know the name? Well, there's uh, one was called Black Bolshevik. Another one is called Negro Liberation. That was 1947, 48. And by who? By Harry Haywood. His, Harry, his, Harry Haywood. Yeah, that was his pen name, not his real name. Where were we? <laughs> I'm sorry. You're talking about uh, when yeah. you moved back, your yeah. mom had to help. Yeah, so then my mother uh, you know, began studying, got interested in history, and started developing her own career. And then... You know, and, and then at some point uh, she decided to come back to the U.S. with with her kids, with myself and my sister. And that was 1964. Was your sister name? Rebecca. Rebecca. Yeah. And so we wound up uh, back in New York City for a little while. I lived in the Lower East Side. Uh, I lived in the Upper West Side. And Lower East Side, I mean, you know, I was a Spanish-speaking black kid. And, uh-huh. and um, there were Puerto Ricans there, but they weren't Mexicans, you know, and it was very different situation. And then I wound up in uh, North Carolina. My mother got a job at Elizabeth City State College. And, you know, it was actually illegal for black people and white people to live under the same roof then. And this was my mom, you know. And they, you know. <laughs> yeah, you read about children? Yeah. <laughs> and so she was there and, uh, you know, they thought she was Creole, so therefore she, uh, you know, she could have black kids or something. And then they found out who my dad was, of course, and they wound up chasing her out. And we wound up living in Detroit, and we were like in inner city Detroit, right before all those riots. You had to go to the hood. Now. Yeah, okay. and uh, you know, I mean, I mean, that was a pretty amazing time for me because I mean, I'm kind of getting acculturated to a different completely different setting. I mean, first of all, I have to say this, the soundtrack was amazing. I mean, Motown, the music was just amazing, you know? Oh, but, okay. but in the meantime, you know, I'm living <laughs> in the middle of all of this and there's the New Detroit Tactical Police and there's all this tension and what, all this stuff. And what's, what's going on in Motown? Yeah, literally, literally it was pretty, pretty intense. And, and we barely got out, you know? Um, you know, I mean, the, the whole place blew up. I mean, 43 people were killed in my neighborhood when the riots came. You know, and uh, but we uh, just basically slipped out. She got into uh, the University of uh, Michigan, and uh, that's where she um, uh, that's where she got her PhD. And everything kind of settled down for us in a lot of ways. There's a whole bunch of stories related to this, and this could go on. But um, uh, so I was there in Ann Arbor, Michigan, during uh, the late '60s, and that was very you know, I mean, this was an academic city and you know up, upper middle class white town okay but now but just did you came when you when you came back at eight years of age yeah you speak you speak in spanish yeah now you moving around the different parts of the country you, li- you lived in three yeah. different places already yeah yeah all right <clears throat> but you still speak in spanish and learning english now yeah but i you know by the time i got to well soon after leaving new york i was not hearing spanish anymore and and I was under a lot of pressure to learn English too, right? So somehow I put Spanish in the background, and so I had to, you know, I had to just, you know, get better in English, and that's that's what I did. I mean, there was I went for many years without speaking Spanish, 
but it was always there, you know. And Ann Arbor was a whole thing with the whole radical underground and the SDS and all that stuff. There was always there was always this radicalism in my family, and so I was always in seeing all of these things. And uh, and then my mom got a job at Rutgers, you know, and uh, that's like. That's where we went, where things got really stable. But in Ann Arbor, I was playing music. I was a drummer, and you know, I, and how old? How old were you at the time? I was like playing? 15. You, you started know. playing music? Yeah, okay. yeah. We were. We had a band, and we had a band, our house. I mean, I was like 15 years old. We had a band house just to get ourselves into as much trouble as possible, which we did. Okay. So then I moved to uh, New Jersey, which I didn't want to do. I mean, that was not much after being in Ann Arbor, but. Uh, uh, and uh, so, and I wound up dropping out of high school in New Jersey, and that's, you know, and I was still a musician, and I decided I was going to go to New York to be like a musician. That's what you're supposed to do. So I went there, and, you know, it was kind of crazy. I ran into all these amazing musicians. They were, you, all, they were all starting you to death. Your, you retaught your career? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it musician. took me a while. You know, I, I tell people, you know, I realized that I could be a really great musician and starve to death or be a really bad doctor and do really well, you know. But that's, <laughs> okay. not, that's not what I did. But, but that, that's just to give you an idea of how that whole thing was. It's like it didn't matter how good you were. You know, it was crazy, you know. That's so, but... And plus, I make fun of this because I was, you know, I was a drummer. I mean, that was the time when disco was on the horizon, and I said, "Oh no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a disco drummer for my life. That's not going to work." So anyway, so that's how that happened. And then so I went to Brooklyn College after getting my GED at the uh, GED. my GED from the. Uh, uh, the Stevens Institute of we, Technology we, we, in Hoboken in one weekend. I said this was much better than high school. <laughs> but look, Doc, I don't know. I don't know. If we can let the people in Mexico hear about you. <laughs> so yeah. So then I got into the City University of New York in an open admissions program, and uh, and I had to, to spend a year, you know, doing algebra and all these things that you know. Did you bypass? Yeah, yeah. There's a whole other story that was really funny that I. Let me hear. I need, to, I need to share it because, so you know, I went from musician. I was uh, tuning pianos as a backup. Okay. How old are you now? How old are you? Back then, yeah, I was like eighteen, eighteen, nineteen. You know, and uh, then uh, you know, I, I had this piano tuner rebuilder who was my mentor, and I was working with him. And he was this guy who survived the concentration camp, and he was like this master mechanic, piano mechanic. And so I was his student for a while and uh, then he said you know hey would you you know you've gotten to the point where you need to go work at Steinway you know which is you know, so, make to be. right so I said okay so I went out to the Queens where the Steinway factory was and I got out and you know and it was this not I mean it was not a very friendly neighborhood to me you know I ran into a bunch of thugs there I think that's the right word <laughs> and they said where are you going and I said I'm gonna go work at Steinway and they said no you're not you're not gonna be in this neighborhood I went you know you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that before. <laughs> before this, it didn't occur to me. It's like, so, okay, there went my career with that. So, and then... Did, um, did it last long? Yeah, that didn't last long. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and uh, one of my dad's friends um, uh, got me a job at uh, Con Edison reading electric meters. So I was reading electric meters for Con Ed, and that was a great job. I mean, it paid well, and I got to get around town and all of that and learn a lot about people and New York's a great place to read meters because you're just you're in all these cultures you know it's great I really loved it but it was getting it was wearing down on me at this point and 
And uh, <laughs> I know this is an endless story. It has nothing, I'm not sure. Okay, you do okay. But uh, so um, one day I read meters in a hospital and I was like pretty much fed up with the job. And I looked around and I said, wow, you know, I hadn't thought of this. And this is something my parents don't do. So this is something I could probably do, you know? So I decided that I was going to do that. So you went to and, the hospital to read a meter. Yeah. And said you want to go be a doctor. Yeah, it just, it just like a, a bolt of lightning <laughs> just came out of nowhere. And, uh, and, and uh, I guess you were you working with electric meters, so it was. You got yeah. electric. <laughs> yeah, I got electric. Yeah, I got electric shock. <laughs> yeah, the meters were right outside this emergency department, uh, and uh, so I just got like this thing stuck in my head that I could do this. And then there was a guy that I worked with who was always carrying organic chemistry books and stuff. And I went and talked to him. This guy from Trinidad, Philippe, and. Uh, and I said, so I see you're carrying all these books and stuff, and, and uh, you know, I'm just curious about what you're doing. He goes, well, I'm, I'm planning to go to medical school. I've got interviews at Harvard and Yale, and you know, I got a 4.0 index. And this guy was like a party animal. And I thought, wow, you know, if he can do this, maybe I can do it. And he said, you know, you can do this because you know, you're a pretty smart guy. You just have to put your mind to it. And I went, oh, okay. So I got in. I, that's where I, I decided to get my GED, and I volunteered at the hospital. I went, got into Brooklyn College, open admissions. I come back to visit the guys I work with a year later, and he's still there. And I go, so wait, what happened? I mean, Harvard and Yale. And he said, well, I'm looking at some schools in the Midwest. I went, okay. So he didn't get in. He's just applying. That's that's not abnormal. So then, you know, I go back to school, and I'm doing pretty well. I go back to visit the next year, and he's still there. I go, so now what, what happened? He goes, well, I'm looking at some schools in Europe. And I go, wow, the guy didn't get in. Yeah. Well, you know, so then the guys that I uh, worked with took me aside and said, hey, would, you know, you'd never realize this, but, but Philippe doesn't really go to school. He just makes all this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, I said, oh, I said my, uh, my mentor is a pathological liar. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he's a great mentor. Yeah, he's a great mentor. So I go off and live this guy's fantasy, basically, as far as I could tell. It was crazy. But And one of my sayings has always been, just because somebody's a pathological liar doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to them. <laughs> that's, that's worked very well for me. Yeah. I mean, he obviously meant very well. And he, you know, he put on quite a show. And, uh, you know, and he helped me a lot. What, what, what can I say? <laughs> You know, so okay. yeah, you're on so, the right track. Your mom but, um, probably happened. Yeah. She would love to see. She would love to have seen Felipe. Right. <laughs> so then I went to um, I uh, went to Houston for medical school, and I had this idea. Now, now, now where'd you graduate? I went from Brooklyn College, Brooklyn City College. University of New York, to uh, Houston to Baylor College of Medicine. Baylor. And, mm -hmm. And um, and I at this point I kind of was looking at maps and I was feeling a little uncomfortable about some things in the north. You know, I mean, people think there's no racism in the north, and of course that's not the case. Like like I told you, my Steinway uh, drama, and I'd been stopped by the police and had all these problems and stuff. But I won't go into those things. Uh, but you know. So I was just kind of fed up with the North, and I thought I need to be looking elsewhere and no, seeing what's that's, going that's on. That's Most people leave the South to go to the North. I know, yeah. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so there was never, never know, any peace. So up there, it was, like, it was like, you know, there's a lot of racism here, but nobody wants to call it that. And, you know, you just get backstabbed, you know. And I was thinking, you know, if I'm going to have to deal with racism, I want it to be in my face. You know, so then I moved to Texas. And then after two weeks of that, I was like, I don't think I want it to be in my face anymore. <laughs> 
I think these two people need to get back into the closet where they belong. You know, let's pretend to be civilized. You so know, now you want to go back to the no, no. But but Texas. You know, it, I mean, this was a very good medical school. Uh, it was close to uh, it was close to Mexico, so I kind of liked that idea. And it was close to the Caribbean. My my spouse then was from Jamaica, and I thought, well, this is perfect. And I also went to some interviews. I went to Ann Arbor, where I, I thought I was going to go to University of Michigan, where I was with my mom. And I got there, and it was like you know, twenty below zero, and a whole bunch of snow, and. And and you know, had to live in Louisa, yeah, in I was Texas, like, uh, I was like, no way, I'm going to be doing this, you know. And then, then I went to Texas for the interview, and it was 70 degrees, and the sky was blue, and you know, the birds were chirping, and I went, ah, this is great, you know. And of course, they forgot that I didn't really hear about the summers till like, <laughs> you know, that was all. <laughs> I didn't really get that part together until later. But so I did that at 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 Houston. I had a good medical education. Culturally, it was horrible. I mean, it was, I was this, back then I was this black, Spanish-speaking, vegetarian, <laughs> you know. There were three blacks out of 168 students. And they were like, mostly, you know, uh, well, they were just very, you know, kind of Baptist and very, it just, culturally, it was just not quite a good fit for me. <laughs> So, um, but during that time, I went to, I did go to um, Mexico a little bit and started to get to feel, you know, I hadn't been there in a long time and suddenly I'd cross into Mexico and I could start breathing again. I was thinking, what's going on? This is kind of different, you know, it's like I can relax. I didn't realize how defensive I was in the United States. I mean, I'd learned, I can see in retrospect that I, you know, had to put on a certain amount of armor to function. You know, and uh, and and that for being black, and that for being Spanish speaking, and that for all these re different reasons, I had to have a pretty good amount of armor. You know, and uh, and then I'd be in Mexico, and like I could breathe. Like, wow, you know, this is this feels good. You know, so I finished my training in the United States. I did the rest of my training in New Mexico, which was as close to Mexico as you could get, and uh, and uh, did all my training there, and got involved in public health stuff and different things. And emergency medicine was my career, my main career, and uh, and then I started getting a really close view of the healthcare system because there's no better close-up view than the emergency department, mm -hmm. and it's you know it's pretty rough. You know, it's you know people go into healthcare, I like to think, because of altruistic reasons, they want to, you know, do things that are good for people, and, you know, that's kind of the fairy tale version of what we do, and then you get there, and it's like this, there's this whole medical industrial complex, and there's all this legal stuff, and all this administrative stuff, and all this corporate stuff, and it's just dehumanizing, it's uh, just, you know. The people, the patients are the last thing. Yeah, and, and my job in emergency medicine is to kind of figure out who needs to be admitted and everybody, I mean, the one reason I was attracted to emergency medicine is because you almost by definition have to see everybody, you know, you don't exclude anybody from the care, but that means that you have to be an advocate for people in situations where they can't otherwise get care, and it, it's just gotten progressively harder and more difficult to do that in the system. It's a, it's a, it's a system where, you know, we spend, uh, it's over $10,000 per man, woman, and child per, per capita, really. And there's, it's 20% of the gross national product of the United States, and we don't provide decent health care. We have the same 
the same life expectancy that they have in Cuba, where they spend a small percentage of what we spend. You know, so you know, there's a difference between clinical medicine, medicine, and healthcare. Healthcare is the system. The system is sh shot in the United uh, States. I just w went off on a big tangent there. The, the system is broke. Is very it? broke. Okay. Very broke. Most of us know that. Yeah, and you know, but, but they, and they're gonna break you if you go if you ever go to the hospital. Yeah, eventually. I mean, you know, you like I said, it's, you know, you're spending ten thousand um, dollars, ten thousand dollars a year, even when you're not using it. You know, you go on for decades like that, and then something happens, and then boom, you're like a million dollars down, literally, because you had cancer, or you got hit by a car, or you had a heart attack. I mean, we're talking about amazingly high bills, and. Uh, it's it's ridiculous. Anyway, that off. That now, now, so also in Mexico, you you have also created your own pathway into helping right. you know, those in the community. What are yeah. you doing to help? Yeah, so, offset some of this. Yeah, so I you know I, I wound up in Mexico. I was pretty disillusioned with the healthcare system, and I really was overwhelmed by the way that it worked and didn't work. And I like I said, I found myself more comfortable in Mexico, and I. I uh, went down and uh, started getting involved. I mean, I realized that I had skills and things that I could teach people, that and uh, that was a setting where I could do that. So you know, so I, I started uh, uh, training people in emergency care and developed these certification programs, and and uh, we've trained about forty thousand people. Forty thousand. Uh, yeah. Uh, doctors and nurses and and even midwives uh, and we've trained them in emergency obstetrics how to deliver babies in emergencies and and also um, you know cardiac care and trauma and all of because this stuff. Because Mexico is not like America they don't have hospitals on every corner. You know Mexico's pretty I mean it's got a reasonably sophisticated medical system oh, okay, you know okay. I mean you know, and they, I, I feel that they try a lot, and they've made a lot of progress in the time that I've been there. Um, uh, and uh, and I, I do have to say, and this is nothing, you know, people always talk about, you know, America versus Mexico. You know, Mexico's in America, too. Okay, <laughs> you know, right, so right. All this. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, but it's a, you know, it's mostly a socialized system like almost like literally everywhere else i mean they, there's a certain amount of um uh, of socialized medicine in mexico and and so they you know so they address the needs of the whole population uh, to some extent or another and i think that they've improved a lot but they had trouble uh main you know getting the skills and maintaining the skills needed and so you know I, that's one thing that i've been able to do with them is to is to you know, provide the training and competency-based certification, which is something that they really needed. And we've worked mostly with the Mexican government doing this, you know, so oh, we've been helping okay. them a lot. So well, that's different. Your mom and dad worked against the government, but you working with the yeah. government. Not Mexico. against the Mexican government. <laughs> Not against the Mexican government. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. So, and then uh, when I started doing my projects, I had some medical students and stuff from the U.S. contact me and say they wanted to come help me with the projects and they wanted to learn Spanish. And I went, oh, I could do a medical Spanish school. So I started this medical Spanish program and we've trained about 700 people in that. They, these are US, uh, uh, they're US uh, doctors who are in training or in residency or who are already in practice and, uh, and they come down and learn how to communicate with Spanish speaking people. There's 50 million 
Spanish-speaking people in the United States. 35 million are Mexican-American. So these, these are large, large numbers. You know, it used to be just like there are certain places where they speak Spanish, but now pretty oh, much every major yeah, city. Where you go now? Yeah, I mean, yeah. At one time, know. New Orleans didn't have. Right, you know. with Hurricane Katrina, there was a huge, in, yeah. huge influx, and that's when we started getting calls from Louisiana saying, "Can you train some of our people in Spanish?" You know, so. Oh, that's so okay. We do that's that. how that. that yeah. Thing. Well, the healthcare system, the yeah. doctors and stuff needed to be able to communicate yeah, with right. the patients. You know, so that's that's. That's kind of what I've been doing, and that's a, that's very much a kind of an but, anthropological but you, thing too, you know. Yeah. yeah, but you don't come to the U.S. that often, though. You know, it's this is a whole nother weird story. Is that you know I, I have a very portable skill, emergency medicine. I don't need an office or a, you know staff or any of those okay. things. I just can parachute in and start working. You know, <laughs> parachute in. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, well, it's, it's the concierge sounds like it's very, you know, high, you know, that, that's, that's yeah, too yeah, that's yeah, too yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm uh, you say yeah, no, no, it's, the, but, you know, when I did my plan, uh, you know, I looked at a map and I said, where can I work in the United States, the closest possible place to where I'm going to live, and I looked on a map and I said, oh, there's this place, Brownsville, Texas, and Harlingen, Texas, and you know, it's like, yeah, okay, it's on so Mexico border. it's right on the border. So, you know, I figured out how I can get to the border and cross the bridge. I'm a migrant worker. I tell people this. I'm literally <laughs> a migrant worker. I cross the bridge and I work three or four shifts uh, a month, three or four shifts in a row, twice a month. So I come back and forth. So I'm a migrant so, worker. If I live in central Mexico, I fly up to, to Monterey, Mexico, oh, which is, right, I leave my car there. I get in my car and then I drive across the border and I do that twice a month and I go back and forth. It's, it's kind of crazy. It's a, it's a different thing. And I've been doing that for, you know, 15 or 20 years, and it's worked really well, except then this COVID thing came along, and suddenly, oh, <laughs> suddenly so it was like, suddenly it was a big problem, so, you know. So, but, but no, you've never been detained, nobody ever. <laughs> you know, it's funny, because I have all the papers I need to be in either country, so they actually can't stop me from couldn't stop me from coming or going in either direction. I was afraid I was going to be quarantined on both sides at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. All so, right, so, but uh, yeah. So anyway, so that's that's uh, kind of what got me up to this point. Was that enough of a background? Or oh, no, that, that's, there's more, right? I mean, that's, you got that's not even a, a touch of yeah. what, you, what your history is. Yeah. But what we do want to talk about. My first time meeting you was just last night at yeah. your mother's. Uh, celebration of your mother and I enjoyed the dialogue we had just in that brief minute like, yeah yeah hold on this bro talk about something I ain't never thought about right yeah, I yeah. brought you to me talk to some other people cause like this is something we're not familiar with uh, in in the US right and I want you to give a little brief history of first of all with this we go we're gonna tie this black is black history month in the in the US yeah and we're gonna we're gonna title this uh, black history in Afro Mexico, yeah. that's how they go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Afro Mexico Black History. Yeah. Okay. And you're gonna be our uh, historian, our renowned uh, speaker today, <laughs> speaking on this subject matter, because yeah. it's just gonna, it's a lot more insight than we most of us never thought about. It. Yeah. African um, Mexico history, Black history, right? Yeah. So uh, we want you to kind of just start where you know the history of. Of Mexico, the leadership of yeah, Mexico, yeah. and within the people in there, how many of us are there now? Yeah. 
Well, so uh, Mexico has a large population of Afro-Mexicans. Uh, there's two and a half million Afro-Mexicans. The total population is about 130 million in Mexico. Uh, so, uh, and they've just uh, finally, after quite a while, been recognized as a, as a, in the census as a minority group and and. But it, you know, all of the Americas has this history related to slavery, and um, and uh, Mexico is no exception. There were large uh, groups of blacks in Mexico, and uh, and people don't really understand or recognize that. You know, we in the U.S. we kind of have a stereotypic idea of what a Mexican is, and mm -hmm. and you know when you travel, you really start to see that it's not that it's not like that at all. You know, there's there's really quite a bit of diversity. Um, so there's areas of Mexico that have large black populations. Um, these are uh, this is like uh, Guerrero and Oaxaca and Veracruz traditionally. Uh, Veracruz is kind of like the New Orleans of uh, Mexico in many oh, ways. Uh, and, um, and people don't realize what a pivotal role uh, Afro-Mexicans have had in the development of Mexican society. Um, one of the uh, original uh, revolutionaries, uh, founding fathers, was uh, Jose Maria Morelos, and he was an Afro-Mexican. And uh, uh, he was one of the four instigators of the Mexican Revolution, and I always say, well, he, you know, he got to the revolution uh, 10 years too early, so they all got executed, but, you know, oh. you shouldn't get to the revolution too early. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, he's recognized as one of the founding fathers. And, and uh, the second president of Mexico, Vicente Guerrero, is, uh, was Afro-Mexican, and uh, he outlawed slavery. Uh, and uh, so and there are a lot of people in... Uh, Oaxaca, this area of the Costa Chica of Oaxaca, and also in Guerrero, uh, uh, who are, you know, have been connecting and connected to their Afro-African roots, and they're they're often mixed with uh, native, uh, with uh, indigenous people from Mexico. They're kind of Creoles, you know, uh, and they those are Afro mestizos. That's how they that's how they mestizos mestizos are mixtures of of uh, well, classically, a mestizo is is uh, Spaniard and Native American, and then when I mean Native American, you have to understand Mexico is Native Americans. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, that's what it is. You know, so so uh, now if you mix the Spaniards, the uh, you know the folks with Aztec and Mayan blood, and the um, uh, and and Africans, then you get Afro mestizos and. Places in Belize, for instance, are very interesting because they have a group called the Garafuna, which are Africans mixed with Mayans, you know? Yeah, so, you know, there's these very interesting mixtures of people. Um, and, you know, you, you don't realize this until you start traveling, but that entire Atlantic coast, all the way down to Panama, is, is African, is, 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 so, you know, we know Belize has a lot of Africans' blood, right? And Belize and, and Guatemala are side by side. They were actually together at some point. Um, but if you go a country down, that's Honduras. And if you, all along that coast is, these are, there, there's a lot of African blood there. And the same with Nicaraguans along the, the Atlantic coast and, the, and all the way down Costa Rica, you know, the, that side, uh, it was always African, uh, West Indian. 
very much West Indian. And, and by the time you get to Panama, Panama is so skinny that it's kind of all got mixed up. But still, it's very, it's more Africanized on the, on the Atlantic coast. Um, and then, you know, you know, you have to ask how it is that these Africans got to places like Oaxaca and uh, Guerrero, which is on the Pacific side. You know, it's like, wow, that's a big distance. You can, t you can see Veracruz being connected to the rest of the Caribbean but it's hard to see how this happened there. But I, I think that there was a migration across the Panama, across Panama and then back up because if you go on the Pacific side in South America, and I'm talking about Colombia and Peru, again, there's a whole bunch of, there are a bunch of Africans. So it's, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, um, it's uh, part of a discovery that I'm involved in there trying to just, you know, I have to travel and try to see more of what's there. I, I, I went to a place near Ixtapa, which is a resort. The nearby is, is a town called Zihuatanejo, which is where the Mexicans go. And, uh, and people were very friendly and open to me. And, uh, and, I was, and they took me to see uh, uh, an art gallery and it had all these African things there. And, uh, and you know, and they were, they were talking about this, the third, the third route. You know, and the third route was the Africans, and and I realized that they were, you know, I mean, they were doing all kinds of things. They were trying to connect to uh, to their African. Uh, no, what what this place is name of this place again? Well, um, Zihuatanejo is kind is is still sort of a resort town in the town of Guerrero, in the state of Guerrero. And remember, Guerrero was the vice president, black vice president. If you go further south from there, it these are people who were much more African. And, and when I'm there, people were said, oh, we thought that you were from El Rancho. We thought you were from, you know, out in the country because we have all these folks that look like you there, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I was like, wow, this is really great, you know? So, so being so. in that part of the, uh, Mexico, in that part of the, the world, is like being here in New Orleans. You see a lot. Well, I mean, you know, uh, New Orleans is <laughs> very unique, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, uh, it's clearly, I mean, you know, the, it's, I think that there is some very interesting um, mixtures of people there, and there's a lot of strong African yeah, influence yeah. that, uh, there, I, you know, there, there's a lot of connections that still need to be made. You know, I've just been thinking about this, you know, having, you know, if there was a connection between New Orleans and this area, it would be like a huge hit. I mean, if you know, to be able to do some, some interaction, some what stuff there would, that, would call that again? assistant city. Yeah, thing. some kind of thing like that would be, would be a massive thing there. It would just draw a ton of uh, attention, and I think people would really be into it. Uh, so it's, this is I've just started thinking about this in the last day. It would be a wonderful thing to be, connect. Being here in New Orleans yeah. and thinking about the. The energy you see yeah. and feel here yeah. to what the experience yeah. you had there. Yeah, I think it would be amazing. And I mean, in New Orleans, have, they just call them Creoles here. Y'all yeah. call them mestizos, right? You say Afro mestizos. Afro yeah. But the same situation, yeah. Yeah. same. But these are mostly kind of rural areas, you know? They're not like, I mean, that's, you know, it's you can't say it's like New Orleans. New Orleans is a it's big, big city. city. Metropolitan. Yeah, yeah you have to talk about the cities, right? I mean, uh, there's probably more... Afro-Mexicans and Afro-Mestizos in the cities than there are in these places. I mean, but, 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 you know, Mexico City's got 21 million people in it. So, you know, everybody's just a drop in the bucket there. But, 
so but you know percentage wise it's going to be very small but there's but in terms of actual numbers there's going to be more Afro-Mexicans in Mexico City, for instance. So it is, it is interesting that if you look up Afro-Mexicans uh, on Wikipedia and Afro-Mestizos, you know, you get to see a lot of, uh, a lot of what I'm talking about. And it's very, it's very interesting, they're very beautiful people, you know, and, uh, it's, and you know, check out the videos there and you'll see some of the history and it's, it's pretty amazing. Now, how, how long have you been here now? In Mexico? Yes. Uh, well, I, I guess I bought a house in Mexico in 96, so it's been 25 years that I've and been you, there. You figure I just come across the border and go back? Yeah, I'm a migrant I'm, worker, yeah. <laughs> I'm in Mexico, I'm not a doctor, actually. I don't have a license in Mexico. And, and I didn't pursue one either. You know, uh, I didn't want to be competing with local doctors over patients. I wanted to train people, you know, so, so that... You know, I didn't want to be in a conflict situation about that. So, and that that helped a lot, I think. Most people travel internationally, and they think they want to be doctors internationally, and all this and kind of missionary stuff. And that's that's not what this was at all. So, so, so but your your plan over the years there, because you say well, once you decided I didn't want to live in the U.S. Yeah. And where where I'm gonna go from here? Yeah, I so I could work in the U.S. I cross across the borders. Get some work done and then go back, you know. And I come back for conferences. Actually, for the first, you know, 10, 15 years, everybody just thought I was crazy, but uh, kind of like my mom, I guess. <laughs> and, and, then, and then they started catching on that I was doing something that was significant in Mexico. And then I wound up, you know, going to conferences and, you know, doing, showing our work. So it's been a long, it's been a long road. It's, it's been very different. I mean, I, not many, it's, you know, I went to a meeting last year where, um, sponsored by the American College of Emergency Physicians, and there's a new, there's a subspecialty of emergency medicine called international, what's global emergency medicine, or international emergency medicine. And there are now 40 training programs in international emergency medicine and I started doing this before there were any of those training programs and so you know I got kind of dragged out there as one of the you know founders yeah, of, you, of, the, of this subspecialty you, you know yeah, so yeah. so there there are all these people training in uh, in international but I just kind of went out and did it you have any children do I have children yes. yeah I, I just I uh, have a daughter who just we just had our grandson my first grandson last month congratulations thank you it was, uh, you know, we train people in emergency obstetrics and all the things that can go wrong, and like we had a f serious lesson in all these things. With your own daughter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, okay. but uh, everybody pulled through, and you know, but it was it was terrifying, <laughs> especially when you train people in this. You know, it's like how could all of these things happen to my grandson? But he wound up getting airlifted out, and he wound up on the oh. ventilator, wound up all this stuff, and I was like. It was, I mean, I was just a mess. I'm still recovering from the shock. In, in New Mexico, Ta Taos, New Mexico. Uh, and I wouldn't have chosen that place, but there's not enough resources there <laughs> when things go bad. And, yeah, 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 you don't, wanna, you don't wanna get really sick there. And, uh, and I worked in that hospital, and it's a great community, but. Like you said, you can't you can't get sick in a place like that because because uh, they can't even fly you out sometimes because mm -hmm. it gets so snowed in and uh, so anyway 
So that was a great experience. Then I have I have uh, two stepsons, and they're 18 and 19. Uh, and, uh, one's going to medical school in Mexico, and uh, okay. and the other's going to be a chef. So, so I'll be so eating so well, I hope. <laughs> so in none, my old age, and none of them was quite rambunctious like the day. <laughs> I don't know. It's early. It's early. <laughs> you know, when I was their age, I was okay. you know. Just starting my meter reading yeah, career, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, you know, tell so, them to do anything. So, so, so Guanajuato, you Guanajuato is the is the city and state where I I live. It's and that's gonna be home for you. That is that's been home for be me. Then place. that's where my mom's been with me for, you know. And that's where y'all buried. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. My wife's from Guanajuato, and uh, and. Um, the house that we're at, my mother bought in 2003, and uh, and you know she spent her last years there, and you know we were able to take really good care of her there. I learned a lot about you know taking care of uh, people at home, and and uh, there's a whole revolution in healthcare that's like digital health and telemedicine and all those things. I got involved in those things, and I'm doing more of that work. Oh, now that okay. there's all these changes happening, and that's kind of a natural you thing. You fall right into what you was doing. Again, you know, you might have to go across the board as much. Right, as right. It's like this, you know. Yeah, I have to all these distances, and I've been training people so that people can be closer to medical people who are, you know, competent and trained. And now there's all this technology showing up, and it's like, okay, let's do it that way. So I've been the last seven years. I've been doing digital health, and I've been running telemedicine programs in the US uh, and now I'm starting one in Mexico so now your mom all her great works all that she contribute contributed to this world in the area of the history the information she went and read doc she went to different countries to to read yeah, break yeah. down documents from yeah. France to yeah. where else, uh, Spain, Spain Cuba, Cuba and put this database yeah, it's amazing. of information. One woman yep. gathered all this yeah. information of her life study have been of the African diaspora. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Those are some, my what, parents what are some big shoes to fill. And so <laughs> I can't, I, I don't think I can compete in that realm <laughs> per se. But all this, but, all this, but, info, yeah. all you, all this, with resources of information, yeah. knowledge that the world is looking for, want to have access yeah. to. With well, I mean, you know, I I think I have. A, I mean, I have in my DNA a lot of things from my mom and my dad that uh, gives me a global perspective, and and uh, they are change agents. These are people who see things in the world that uh, they recognize as uh, as problems and barriers, and they figure out how to how to overcome them and how to, you know, make things work differently. And so I've inherited that part, you know. I mean, I, I'm sort of a social entrepreneur. I, I find problems and then I try to build mm -hmm. systems okay. to fix, build, you know, businesses or other organizations to fix them. And so, and it's, my, my stuff is obviously very, I mean, we're talking about medicine and things like maternal mortality rates and things that are like that. So it's, it's very much... Uh, I don't want to say more scientific, but I mean, because what my mother did really was uh, bring all of this data in into a field where there there wasn't data. You know, I mean, history 
was mostly uh, you know um, you know kind of narratives and people's perspectives and you know how how subjective that can get mm -hmm. you know how, how objective it is uh, yeah and uh, so she was you know and, and it's really worth noting that she did all of this in her retirement for the most part she, you she know passed at how old was she yeah she started you know when once she retired from her regular job in uh, at Rutgers, where she, you know, I mean, she did the things that professors need to do there and whatnot, but this was not her life calling, per se. This was her job, and nobody would give her any, you know, any leeway to do the things that she really wanted to do as, as, a, as a woman, as a, you know, middle-aged woman with black kids, uh, you know, in this kind of academic environment that was very hostile towards, towards women and uh, you know, so, you know, she just, this was just her job. And when she finished her job, she came to New Orleans and then she started doing her passion. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's remarkable because, you know, she started putting this database together when people were not even thinking about that. She's like this, you know, gray-haired little lady, old lady going around from one parish courthouse to the next, uncovering documents that nobody even knew were there, had any clue what they meant or what they were about, you know. and. She just did that for like 16 years. She's a long hauler, you know. She just sits there and just picks that away, picks away, and you know, and uh, and uh, no, you know, nobody really gets it, understands any of it until boom, you know, it's like, wow, now there's this database, and and then the other absolutely genius thing about it is that she connected it to genealogy, you know, so that made it something that was real to people you know it wasn't some academic something that was not you know you know there's this tendency in academia everybody knows that they can get pretty separated and divorced from uh, from the day-to-day -day life of people connecting history to genealogy uh, makes it a real thing for people uh, it's you know that's one of the things I would love to see in the symposium is how is to make sure that it has the community uh, that that whole community part of it you know uh, and uh, I think that's a huge that's a huge thing so sh so she had this you know activism background and then had the has uh, the academic part and then the genealogy part which is really this part that that connects people to this so I think that's a really powerful thing that she did oh. and uh, even in her at the time of her demise she was still working which you probably thought she was going to complete this final book. Yeah, I mean, she's always been a whirlwind, and she sits, you know, she would sit around and just type away and do stuff. I mean, she just, just do just, stuff. You know, like, what is she doing now? I was like, I, I don't know. Uh, so she was with me for a good, you know, good length of time, uh, 10 years, and then she was also with me in the past. But, you know, and she was getting up there in age and having medical problems. And she was like, she would like go off to like a, a conference and she'd just like schedule herself for a conference and f fly off somewhere. And I'm like, where are you going now? It's like, well, you know, you need to have some people with you. You know, I mean, you know, because she, she was fiercely independent, you know, so she'd just make these arrangements for these complex things, you know, and she'd go and, and then a good chunk of time she'd like, get ill and then she there'd be some problem and it'd be hard for her to travel and you know hard to get back and I said mom you know you know you got to slow down on this because you know you got to find ways of reaching people through zoom and other stuff because 
because this traveling is, is, is rough. So one, one time she went to a conference and she came back and she got, she got really sick and she was septic and, you know, really barely made it through. And, and, uh, and I turned the home into, you know, the parts that weren't in the hospital. I kind of created a hospital at home and I got nurses and got all these people to help run run all of this and I really shouldn't have been her doctor per se but I did a fair amount of that and she got through it and then you know and then she wrote a book <laughs> <laughs> but, but she, she finished she, she, yeah. she's just recovering from, yeah 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 from, from and then, an, then another time she goes to another conference and comes back and boom she has to have a pacemaker and uh, she recovers from that and writes another book you know so what you gonna say? Yeah, you, you know, gotta let, her, yeah. let her go. And then, and then she's been, you know, she was working on another book, and she got like all the way through to. Uh, well, she has a couple, had a couple chapters to finish, and but that's when she had Joey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You, know, you know, the title of that book was. Uh, you know, these things kind of go around in circles. So I don't think she actually had a title yet, and oh, it's yeah. an unfinished work, and that's something that I have to look at, see how we can do it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's a, so it's an unfinished something that needs to be worked on. But at ninety, what how old was she? Four? Ninety-three. Ninety-three, she was still writing, organizing thoughts, everything, yeah. writing books. Yeah, yeah. And, and got people working for her. Got people moving, getting this and getting that. Yeah. I mean, I guess with technology, she still had access to the world, and so it wasn't as hard. Yeah. Cause yeah. You no, know, she was always very advanced and. And technology. Oh yeah, but she knew more about technology than the, the young people did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she she created her own database. Right, right. Now tell us a little bit about that. You familiar with it? <laughs> I'm familiar with it. Uh, you know, people were not using. I mean, putting all this stuff. Yeah, here it is. Ultimately, we got this. Uh, she got this CD, and this was all uh, put on a platform at, uh, at a Biblio. But uh, you know, this was a database that had some 50 fields in it per entry, and uh, 50 potential fields, and it was like 105,000 slaves. It was all of the. Um, um, it, it was all the information from the 16 years of collecting uh, data, and and. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, it connects people in in all kinds of ways. People it obviously has genealogy functions, but uh, it was very interesting to me to see how uh, how she would use the database to find information. So, you know, for instance, one of the things was, you know, she could see what the average age was in in uh, in New Orleans uh, and she could see these spikes that go up and down. And she goes, you see where that spike, where it spikes and it goes down? And I said, yeah. She goes, that's when a slave ship came in. You know, so she could see the movements of people oh. over, and she could really break it down. And she could see who the slaves were and where they, you know, where they came from, where the transshipment points were. And, you know, and uh, she could, she knew, you know, obviously who they were related to, uh, if, you know, if they were on the plantations, she knew what their skills were, she knew what their illnesses were, uh, you know, I mean, just that, that granular level of, of knowing the population. And this was not, uh, this was not a, like a sample, you know, we, in science, you think about samples and how they represent the larger picture. I mean, this was like literally, 
you know, every slave during the French colonial period. I mean, there may be some other islands or areas where there's data, but I mean, this was this was not a sample per se. This was like just like everyone, and and doing that is uh, is like crazy because that's like you know, this is the DNA of you know African Americans in the Delta. And that's the DNA of the Africans that have migrated through the north and, uh, and have transported all the culture that we know as Afro-American culture all throughout, uh, all throughout uh, the United States. I mean, now, you know, there were other, obviously, Africans that were brought to the original 13 colonies. But, you know, because of the British system, uh, you know, they were not that interested in, in the, the people that they were bringing, you know. I mean, the French had, you know, I mean, it sounds a little odd, but, you know, there was, it's kind of like wine to them. I mean, they were, like, really into understanding much more, you know, and a lot more details about, uh, about the slaves for property reasons and for whatever. But, I mean, you know, there was just, uh, there was a lot more um, analysis of who the, who the slaves were. And 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 the also the point is that you know that Africans to this area came culture intact and maintained a lot of their culture, whereas in the thirteen colonies, I think that a lot of the culture was just scrambled and they were left without their language and their none you know so, and it's hard to pull yourself up as a people when you have all of those things disrupted you know, mm-hmm. but but Louisiana didn't have that kind of disruption. I mean, there was always, there was, yes, there was disruption, but, but uh, still, you know, the, uh, the Africans uh, came over in many ways culture intact and continued to transmit that culture into this area, and then this brought it to the rest of the United States. And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, those who started blues and jazz and all of the, you know, there's a, there's a taproot you know, there's a kind of a, this is, I mean, you, you know, if you look at, 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 at maps over time, and that, you do that, I'm, I'm sure, is, it's like, you know, like when we say Louisiana back then, we're talking about something that stretched all the way to Canada. Oh, that's right. You know? about that, yeah. yeah, and so, you know, over time, now there's all these different states, and like Tennessee says this, and what, I mean, you know, uh, these are, to me, these are kind of iterations of something that's happening at a much deeper level, and that came from here. That came from New Orleans, to me. Um, from the South, not just New Orleans. Because <laughs> most of the great musicians from New, in Louisiana came out of small towns of Donaldsonville, uh, A.B.N., Joe King Oliver was from... A, a been uh, but, uh, people like that. But how does the how uh, does that you know how does that knowledge of music diffuse through a population? You know, I mean, we're talking you're talking about specific people who were you know, but they've been influenced by others and they've heard other you know. So they, the fundamentals of what they do, the alphabet that they use, comes from somewhere. You know, and to me, that alphabet is 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 here. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I don't know that. You know, where did the slaves come from in Mississippi? I mean, when they came, they they did they go directly to Mississippi, or did they come? I, I guess they had the ports. They came through in, here, right? The ports. Was, 
most of them came down. Yeah, most, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. That's good what I'm talking point. about. That's a good point. Right. You know. So, you know, it's it's sort of like a way language uh, language is diffused. You know, I mean, it's you know, it's uh, so you know. I think the that alphabet is is here that, that that's put together in different ways later on in time in different other places, and and if you don't have a sense of history, you could say, well, you know, this all started here in. Oh, okay. in Tennessee or it started somewhere else but but you know those people who started it were listening or part of something else and they were those people were part of something else and then yeah. you trace that back and you wind up in New Orleans mm. you know that's what it looks like to me from yeah. a distance and I'm not an expert on this no but that's good because we we do <laughs> fortunately have here Dr. George Jackson who is one of the renowned scholars he also is the chair of LSU Department of Anthropology and Geography Okay, yeah, we were talking about music and the music in New Orleans is, is, you know, versus the music in some other areas, you know, like Mississippi, Natchez, you know. And I just wanted to make the point that a lot of the musicians in New Orleans that people think are from New Orleans are actually not from New Orleans. They were born in most of the parishes that are surrounding New Orleans. And they came into New Orleans as adults. Many of them had honed their craft before they came into New Orleans. Joe, you know, Joe King Oliver, a Bend, Louisiana, which is very near Donaldsonville. Um, Kid Ori is from Reserve, Louisiana, which is out, right outside of New Orleans. Uh, and various others. I looked, I've done some research. I had 130 some musicians that were not born in New Orleans, but came into New Orleans after they became adults. I mean, some of them had already formed their bands, some of them had been singing quartet music on the bridge outside of New Orleans in another parish. But then they come into New Orleans because that's the big city. Right. And that's where they think they really can make it. Sure. And many of them did. Yeah, like yeah. Joe King Oliver, he yeah. mentored Louis Armstrong, yeah. you know, yeah. when they went, to, went north of Chicago. But, you know, I mean, it, it makes sense what you're saying. And there's, you know, I think that... Um, I'm kind of looking at it a little bit like music as a language, you yeah. know, and, uh, you know, and language needs people, you know, and people concentrate in cities, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, the, uh, it's, yeah, it, it's not like, it, it's not like this, everything necessarily started here, here, but obviously it's a place where you get a lot of cross-pollination of ideas and concepts and things start to come together in a different Way, I mean, right. I've seen some of that in Brooklyn. You know, Brooklyn has all these different cultures, and mm-hmm. and uh, people come there from the Caribbean and all these other places, and then it starts to meld into something that's yeah, that's something, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. so there's some process like that. It seemed that maybe happened here to some yeah. extent. And I always tell my students, I say, well, I hate to disappoint you, but la- language is not a universal thing, and music is not a universal yeah, language, right. as yeah. a lot of people think it is. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so uh, you know, you have to look at, it. and then I start telling them you have to look at music like it's a language. So you, you know, linguistics and ethnomusicology yeah. really go hand in hand. Yeah, it's really interesting because neurologically, uh, you know, there's speech centers in your brain, mostly on the left side, mm-hmm. that allow you to speak and uh, communicate in a language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's ways of lighting those areas up with some radiology so you can see that functioning, the language. Uh, 
mm-hmm. parts. The mirror image of that is where the music sits on the other side. It's literally the the what would have been the language areas on the left side or on the right side, and mm. that's the music areas. So it's 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 very interesting. It's music and language is tied up very closely. Oh yeah. Yeah. And in some areas, that's a very thin line, yeah, you yeah. know, between speech and song. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very thin. So. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was trying to figure out the name of this African blues guitarist. Uh, the, I remember his name, Ali Farka Toure. Oh, remember yeah, him? He was yes. he was he was playing African blues, you know. Yeah. Well, you know that was what actually sort of captivated Ibrahim uh, Sek, the the historian. Yeah, yeah. When he came in this area, particularly in Mississippi, yeah. he went to a juke joint and heard this blues yeah. playing. He said, "Wait a minute, that sounds like you know, an Ngoni player in Senegal." Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Know? Right. And it was almost, you know, just a couple of strings yeah. that he was playing with. And, and uh, the first time I heard that was on on um, Ned Subalet's show, uh, oh, yeah. Afro Pop Worldwide. Afro Pop. And I used to, I mean, every week, I mean, I'd, I'd have to hear that show, you know, oh, yeah. and it got me through so much stuff. And then to have him come into our lives, interviewing my mom, and then, you mm-hmm. know, that was, so that's a big... Thing. Yeah. I finally met him yesterday for the first time. Oh, so, that was your yeah, first time. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's been around. He he practically lives in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. I thought he was. I mean, you know, yeah. He told me he was from Lubbock or something. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. But he kind of so, lives in New York, New Orleans, and Cuba and Havana. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Yeah, Havana's Havana. a big music. Place too yeah. huge, and some of the music is very similar. To yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, it's another big tap root for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Just really, I mean, uh, I want to thank you, Brother Haywood, Doctor Haywood, for just after just meeting you last night uh, and asking, "Look, can we do an interview?" And you graciously accepted just to come until we come here. But for you to take your time, time out your busy schedule, to to sit here this morning and do this interview means the world to to me and my audience. Thank you so so very much. Well, thank you very much. It means a lot to me to connect to this. Uh, you know, my my wife uh, yesterday said, you know, Hayward, you always said that you don't fit anywhere and you don't belong anywhere and you feel like you're an alien or something and. And she said, I saw you yesterday, and I see that you found your people. Oh! <laughs> that's, what she's, that's what she said. Your wife told you that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 12 years. So. You've been married 12 years? Yeah, Sweet yeah. young lady. Blanca? Yeah, Blanca. Uh-huh. Now, what's your thoughts on what she shared with you? Well, that's absolutely correct. That's totally correct. And, you know, I, I just feel like I've been... Um, you know, an, uh, kind of an ectopic, uh, you know, I didn't realize it, but I'm a very much multicultural in a, in a New Orleans sense, I think, you know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that, where I, I'm not going to fit in a lot of places, you know, and, uh, but New Orleans really seems to be a good fit for me in many ways. <laughs> okay, well, how is that? Well, just because, you know, it's the, I mean, the, there's a strong African root, obviously, you know, and I think it's very multicultural. This is a place where, you know, the French have been and the Spanish has been, you know, I've, I've always been attracted to uh, the Caribbean as well. And so there's a lot of those roots. And of course, 
you know, this has been the 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 bulk of my mother's work, you know, so she connects me to this. And like I said, I see this as as the place where the rest of the United States where black culture in the United States have come from this area, you know. So it it connects me in in uh, important ways that I've been disconnected before. Like I said, I've always been sort of an outsider and margin in the margin. Nobody can put uh, put me in a this box or that box, you know. But you keep doing that enough, and you start to feel like you don't belong anywhere. And uh, oh, wow. you know, and uh, you know, no, that's I think a powerful statement. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so you isolate yourself at some point from the world. Yeah, and so Un- unconsciously. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, as a, as a child and as a teenager, you're trying to fit into the world somehow, you know, and, and I had to find my way without finding, without letting anybody put me in this box or the other box. And that was not an easy thing. You can see I dropped out of high school. I did all these things. You know, like I said, I tried to fail, whatever. And I put myself in the box, in the medicine box, you know, that, that worked for whatever reason, for a while, you know, but it didn't get me around, you know, all it did was delay, you know, it had to still happen, you know, and so, so I realized that I, this is a lot more where I, where I fit, you know, so it's, it feels good. So coming to New Orleans, did you expect or anticipate this Mm. vibe happening? I didn't. Or you just come to, come Come to take care of something on behalf of your mom uh, and get on back to yeah, business. Yeah, I thought you know. I thought I was just closing something out that needed to happen with mom, and uh, and I found something else which I think is really important. Yeah. And you know, and it's it's the it's complicated. The history is complicated because you saw how this was with my parents and and my mom's family who who you know were very progressive in their way. But they were not that progressive, <laughs> you know. So when I was born, it's like I was not necessarily the person who was welcome here, you know. Mm. So I had to deal with that, you know. And so, I, you know, to me, New Orleans was a place where my grandparents and my mom's family was, but they was not a but, part of but I wasn't a part of that. And so I, so they you know. Didn't, they didn't really accept you i can't say that they accepted me i can't i mean i can't as a child i can't say i felt that at all because you didn't and that's probably why she didn't bring you here that right right i mean did, did you spend much time here at all hardly i i think i was here twice up till the age of 20 and and, did, and did, it was not you, uh, it was not a comfortable experience so, so you didn't know your grand your, your mom mother and father you didn't know them that way and I, you know, I saw them, very, you know, they came to visit us a few times in Mexico, but these were not good interactions. You know, this was not like warm, fuzzy, you know, and cookies these, from grandma interactions. And, and, and you know. These are, they are Germans. They are German? Your mom was a German? No, the Russian and... Your mom was Russian? Russian and Polish. Oh, I mean, my, my grandfather was uh, Polish and my grandmother was Russian, Jews. Yeah. The Russian Jews. Right. And Polish Jews. You know, so they came over. And, and you know, like you you know, they were part of this merchant class here. Uh, Business people. Yeah, you know. Uh, and, and, and they, you know, and, you know, they had to work their ass off too. And, you know, they came from pretty austere, difficult backgrounds. 
but you know, uh, but you know, so they were, you know, I mean, from what I can see, they were like the people who, um, you know, they they would make suits for black people and they would help them do. The, they'd help them deal with the legal stuff because they were lawyers and you know the other Gentiles wouldn't have anything to do with black people you know and and so there was the, just that thing but you know mm-hmm. it's a different thing when you you know you bring this big black political character into your life mm-hmm. you know like my dad that's like okay that's that's a little bit too much you know I mean at least and you know to some extent you know these I think that they were trying to assimilate into the society hmm. somehow or another and this was sort of a big you know fly in the ointment <laughs> so I was never I never felt a part of it and uh, so and I couldn't think about New Orleans without thinking about how I didn't fit there because of that but mm-hmm. but now you know all that layer of people are all gone and so you know and suddenly I'm the patriarch <laughs> like what what the hell? I was <laughs> right. going on. Yeah, it's like wow. It's like a, Mama Gia, what the hell yeah, going yeah, on? Yeah, it's kind of spin my head a little bit, you know. <laughs> so, so that's kind of nice, you know. So I'm gonna have to come back more. But, but it, 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 and I found a little it, apartment. It even. brought some. Uh, what you call that again? Uh, some relief and. You, you 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 didn't come here only because of what you, your the, the little memories you had back in your in the back of your mind, and so that kept you away. Now you're here, but your mom grew up and spent a lot of her time in writing and work, and you're finally connecting to it. Yeah, yeah. I finally this gives me a, you know the whole situation has changed. Um, wouldn't expected this. No, I wasn't. I wasn't quite expecting that. So that's great. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's that feels good because, you know, I mean, I'm you know I'm not a kid anymore. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but so I'm so like uh, like are you my mama? Is, is this my home? You know, I'm still like just you know I lived all these different places. I never found a you know. Oh, I know. I think so, it goes deeper. Than yeah, so it's a big on top of what happened between your grandparents. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been a you know refugee, really, you know, so you know. You really are a migrant worker. Yeah, refugee <laughs> and migrant worker, you know. And I'd laugh about it, you know, like that's just the way I'm. But you know, but migrant from where, you know, where, you know. And now I realize that that uh, New Orleans is is really where a lot of what I am somehow came from, and I, you know, just hadn't really been able to connect to it. You can feel the energy of the people. Oh yeah, and I just love it, you know. And I love the music and uh, the art, and you know, it's very cultural. And what's one of the things I like about Mexico? It's very cultural, and there's all these, you know, uh, murals and stuff, and all these things that happen. Yeah. And that's so. Wait, black, wait, wait, black till, wait till you experience the Mardi Gras. In, in yeah, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 but you yeah. really gonna be at home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not. I've not really seen that, and I've you know, and I I went to the blues. And jazz festival once, but uh, again, you know, I'm just like I, that body armor that I had, you know, just would, just kept me from really letting, you know. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I couldn't really connect as much as I, f- I feel like I can now. 
So that gives me another thing to do. So that's cool. So you thought this interview was over a half hour ago, didn't you? Oh, yeah, no, 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 it's got to go. Can you just give us a brief, if you know, a brief synopsis of your mom's involvement with the Deacons of Defense? Which was right down the street from where you had that. Is that right? Deacon for Defense. So I don't know that much about that, per se. Um, you know, I know that my mom and dad worked on some uh, publications in Soul Book. Did you, I don't know if you know about that. Yeah, so, you know, and that was very much, um, you know, things that were circulated in the Bay Area around the time of the Black Panther Party formation that reflected a lot of the self-defense, uh, you know, um, uh, self-determination and self-defense. To me, the Deacons of the Deacons for Defense was part of that. I'm not sure which came first or what, you know. They're in this area, right? So um, I don't, I don't, I can't say specifically. You know, I'm gonna have to learn a lot more. Well, you becoming, you becoming home more regularly now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome home, my brother. Yeah, thank you. You have to go all the way around the world and come back to Louisiana. Yeah, that's interesting. To the down home blues. That's crazy. <laughs> now you see why they were singing the blues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I have medical licenses in 18 different states, and uh, mm -hmm. I don't have one here. And part of it is because my telemedicine activity, you know. I, you know, But you but, can still practice medical in Louisiana for what you do. Well, you know, I'm interested in, like, healthcare systems now. You know, it's not like so much, it's not so much me taking... Working at a hospital, you want to deal with the whole system. Yeah, I, I want to, you know, figure out how to get healthcare to people uh, in a new way, because... Uh, what we've done doesn't work very well. So, what is that new way? What's your idea for the new Well, way? I mean, it's you know, the telemedicine is a part of that. Uh, there's digital health stuff. People, you know, you now can have access to applications. Your phones can take your pulse and your your heart rate and your oxygen saturation. Uh, there's remote patient monitoring that can be done in different ways. Some of this had to do with my mom, you know, try, taking care of her. I did literally take care of her off the grid. So I learned how to do certain things and, you know, things that might have normally been done in a hospital. I think people, uh, you know, there's so much, um, uh, you know, centralization and bricks and mortar when it comes to healthcare. And it really, I think that the technology is getting to the point where it's getting, you know, there's the possibility of more decentralized care and more personalized care. And uh, and uh, it's not so much like the radio station that's broadcasting out health care. You know, it's now everybody can, you know, you can kind of uh, build it around people's interests and their own responsibility as much as possible and still have the community perspective. So it's a whole nother world out there. I need another... 30 years to do this but well, you just like your mom yeah well you know my <laughs> mom like encouraged mom. me for all this digital health stuff and she helped me get some training in some areas already, but i mean uh, but she saw what i was doing and she said you know and i thought this was very interesting she said you know it's the last third of your life where you're going to make the biggest impact mm -hmm. you know so you know and i just turned just went into my sixties. just went into my 60s yeah <laughs> i don't have there's no concept of retirement in my family okay. my mom my dad you know they didn't prepare me for the concept of retirement it's like if you if you think you have to retire you've been doing the wrong thing I was just wondering if you had 
worked with any traditional healers in Mexico, if you've ever incorporated any of their things in your practice or brought them in to, you know, collaborate with them? Um, I, we've done some important work with midwives, uh, traditional midwives, uh, and this was around emergency obstetrics and, and, um, and with the idea of decreasing maternal mortality rates. In, Mex in Chiapas, Mexico, probably 70% of the childbirths are done by traditional midwives. Mm. Uh, so now, uh, as far, but what we've taught is some very technical things on how to recognize certain kind of red flags. And, and, and most importantly, we've, I think we've brought them together with people in the health ministry so that if something goes wrong, they feel comfortable communicating and helping to follow through on the care of these patients because they were typically so marginalized that if something went wrong, they wouldn't be able to connect to the rest of the healthcare system and the woman would die, you mm -hmm. know? Yes. So, our, and you know, I said, I'm an emergency medicine doctor, so I'm really kind of nuts and bolts about, you know, specific things that can be done to help people in certain cases. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, as far as you know, the, the kind of the you know the the like the naturalistic healthcare or the the kind of uh, there's a lot of care that I consider kind of a wellness care and wellness behavior and those things which I think are very important for people's health. Yeah. Um, so like a holistic view. Of yeah. Health. Yeah. So I think that's that is uh, for me that's wellness. That I put that in the wellness category, okay. um, you know. I, you know, but like I said, I'm an emergency medicine doctor, so I'm like the you know the car accidents, the you know the gunshot wounds, the mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the heart Stabbings. attacks, you know. <laughs> and there's you know I, so I don't incorporate any of the, those things into that practice. It's kind of you were asking me about toxicology, detoxing. It's like for me, detoxing is is a very concrete thing you know it's it's like you know um, not nutritional <laughs> yeah i mean it's not a nutritional thing now people anybody who does who's involved in a whole variety of different wellness activities is going to be healthier just because they're involved in their health care you know and i can't tell you that you know yoga or tai chi or this or that or the other thing is going to make a difference person i it, you know that it's specific, but I can tell you that all of those things help people. Oh, mm -hmm. So if they, if you think it helps you, then that's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, um, do you have any the community centers that work with people? You know, traditional healers that are. Um, you know, I think it's a, it is important to say that uh, people uh, often use traditional healers and they use traditional herbs and those kinds of things and and some of those things are quite bioactive I mean they definitely have some effect mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and so it's a mistake to dismiss all of those things I mean you know you have to realize that people may be taking certain things and some of those things may be active but but we've had it, and when when you're dealing with patients if you don't understand some of those relationships then you can't really provide the care that you need to you know so um, uh, you know, in Mexico, they have very specific, very cultural things that 
illnesses and things that they you know reference and they don't fit neatly into the western concept of what those things are but you you right. you know so um part of what we do with the med spanish program is we introduce the docs to the types of things that the mexican patients might be doing and what they're thinking about and right. they've done some studies where they uh you know, uh, they interview the doctor and they interview the patient about what the problem was. And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, they're like on a completely different planet. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, the doctor says, well, this is a, it's a headache uh, syndrome, whatever. And the patient says, you know, it was an evil eye, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, and uh, sometimes it's, it may take a combination of things from the quote unquote orthodox position and the <laughs> so, well, <laughs> you know, um, there's there's a there's a spiritual aspect of of uh, healing and mm -hmm. wellness that is definitely there, you know, and right. you know, and you in a lot of ways you can't complete things without trying to close that, mm -hmm. you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, it it may mean, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways. The Western medical model is very mechanical. It's mechanics, mm -hmm. you know. It's not so spiritual, right? Mm -hmm. So if if people have this spiritual orientation, then you have to say, well, we've taken care of this mechanical part, and you know, now yeah, the rest of it, you're going to work your way through it, you know. Yeah. And you acknowledging that, I think, is very important. Um, but as far as you know, putting it into the system the care that we provide i mean you, you if you i'll send you a little video so you can see what what we're talking about i mean we're these are nuts and bolts right. you know things all yeah. the stuff i just lived through last month mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's the you know it's it's a very specific thing yeah you know you can do all of the right mechanical things and the patient just crashes it and burns because of i don't know what you yes. know, and then we have other people who are not supposed to be walking around and seem to be doing completely well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I had that last, my last shift was crazy. I had somebody who literally, there's no, they were just basically as close to death as you can be. And all of their lab values looked normal. Mm -hmm. I was like, this, this has got to be somebody else's. It's got to be this other guy because, because he really looked terrible, but he went out to smoke and I was like <laughs> you know, I got a call from the ICU saying you have to intubate this guy and put him on a ventilator I said he went out to smoke <laughs> I'm not, not going to intubate somebody who went out to smoke <laughs> yeah so but uh, yeah so there's all this there's a whole bunch of other stuff there but mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, I, you know I understand that aspect of it it's just you know that it's not something i integrate much into what i'm yeah well you know what i really want to do is to be able to uh, help in this area of emergency obstetrics mm -hmm. you know we train people at all levels it's kind of like a chain of survival strategy you know so mm -hmm. uh, but we try to get them on the same page about specific types of of problems and you know i mean it's obviously a kind of a western uh, approach to you know these interventions yeah you know, but necessary oh wow yes indeed
Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Man can shackle the hand. The man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time. <laughs>